Worldview Discussions, Lesson 13, The Serpent, The Seraphim, and The Satan. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. So we're, as a review, thinking about the world of the Bible, right? And we're thinking about who is down here on tier two. We've got three tiers. There's what's up there and who's up there in the skies. And then there's what's down here with cosmic temples and who's down here. We've got people coming to temples and we've got priests and the Bible making these amazing claims that we're all priests. But we also have individuals like this serpent in Genesis 3. So I want to explore for today, or for this lesson, who in the world, or what in the world, is this serpent? What kind of language is the Bible using? How does that language connect with the ancient Near East? Because it does. And how far should I go in connecting passages like Genesis 3 that tells me about a serpent and Revelation 12 that speaks of a serpent being a dragon and the devil? How do I have Genesis 3 be informed by Revelation 12? In other words, is Revelation 12, which I'm going to read in a second, a commentary further explaining to me what's going on in Genesis 3? Or is it just using Genesis 3 in, as a backdrop to talk about what it wants to talk about, but isn't intending to provide a commentary? And I have to tell you up front, I'm not certain. <laughs> in other words, I'm not certain if the devil that confronts Jesus, let's say, in the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, is that devil the, the serpent of Genesis 3? I, I know that biblical scholars are divided about this. You might be surprised to hear that. I think these days I'm more inclined to think that there is a connection. Um, that there are ways in which a spiritual being is described in Genesis 3, but it changes over time with different cultures. And so the way you'd read it described in Revelation 12 is different. So let me just read two passages, and then I want to share an article with you guys to just process a little bit of this. Again, all with the, the idea in mind that we are to think about the way in Genesis 3 that would have made sense to an ancient Near Eastern audience. What would they have heard from that? We start there. And then can we move forward and add greater understanding to who that serpent is, and who Jesus is being confronted by and tempted by in the wilderness. And then 
a few concluding thoughts of how we should respond, and I'll read a passage from Ephesians 12, uh, Ephesians 6, rather. So here's Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and she had a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, and his tail swept a third of the stars. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. He wanted to devour the child. And she gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations. And her child, though, was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled to the wilderness. And then we read in verse 7, A war arose in heaven by Michael and his angels fighting the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And here's the, the key verse for, for our lesson. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, what does that have to do with Genesis 3? Let me read a couple verses from Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, Do not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the woman, the serpent said to the woman, You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, remember, it was knowing good and evil, and here she says it's to make her wise. She took the fruit, ate it, gave to her husband. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And then a little bit later, God's going to confront the serpent in verse 14 and say, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock above all the beasts. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your serpent, your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his, the offspring of the woman, his heel. So, what is going on with this serpent? How would they have understood the serpent in the ancient Near East? And you probably won't be surprised to find out that a an idea of a serpent at a tree was a pretty common way of talking about wisdom in the ancient Near East. The desire to gain wisdom. And of course, life, living a long life, was related to wisdom. If you're wise, you'll live a long life. This sounds like Proverbs, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting that Proverbs starts with a conversation about a tree 
<laughs> and by the way, so does Psalm 1. So these ideas and motifs would have been normal in the ancient world. In fact, even serpents were recognized as a part of the way of talking about wisdom and cunning. So, all right, I want to read an article for you guys, and I'll, I'll attach it. Snake or seraph, the identity of the serpent in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 1 introduces a new character into the Eden narrative and sing signals a shift in the plot. He's introduced as the serpent. Initially, the reader may picture nothing more than a legless reptile. The Hebrew term, nahash, is generally used to refer to a reptile, usually a legless reptile as, as a snake. So see Numbers 21, verse 6. But additional information in the account suggests that this entity is more than a mere snake. This creature talks with the humans and entices uh, them to sin. As a result, he and his offspring are cursed by God. The mixture of animal and supra-animal characteristics raises the question of the real identity of this tempter, the answer to which is vital for a proper interpretation of the text. Some modern scholars suggest that the narrator's portrayal of a talking animal classifies the text as an ancient folklore and myth, and it serves both an etiological as well as a moralistic function. Herman Gunkel opines, the myth belongs to a category of myths and fairy tales very common in antiquity and among primitive peoples, which can tell how certain animals came by their unusual characteristics. Why the flounder has its oblique mouth, the donkey its long ears, and the bear its stumpy tail. Others argue the narrative with, uh, sorry, others compare the narrative with ancient Near Eastern serpent mythology and argue that the serpent is a symbol of immorality, wisdom, or chaos. Still other modern commentators propose that the serpent be seen as a symbol for evil impulse that resides within human beings or a, a metaphor for whatever in God's good creation serves to facilitate options for human decisions for or against God. There are, however, significant problems with these modern views. The historical character and non-symbolic nature of other Edenic references like trees, rivers, animals, humans, render the interpretation of the serpent as a mythical symbol or as the personification of evil impulse untenable. The fact that Moses attributes personal qualities, speech, intelligence, ethical capacity, to the serpent portrays him as an entity liable to divine judgment, and it precludes treating the serpent as a mere metaphor. Such an interpretation is incompatible with the textual data. Traditionally, Bible scholars have taken the serpent as a real snake that becomes an instrument or organ through which Satan entices man to sin. The fact that the serpent is compared to the beast of the field seems to suggest an ordinary snake. That the serpent is styled as crafty does not necessarily disqualify the entity from membership in the animal kingdom, since 
The Bible elsewhere attributes sapient qualities to mere creatures, including the snake. The data also suggests, however, that there is an intelligent and malicious personality at work behind this creature. Therefore, the majority of commentators identify the evil persona behind the serpent as none other than Satan, also called the devil, the dragon, and significantly the ancient serpent in Revelation 12. According to scripture, Satan can enter, possess, and influence both animals and humans. I'm assuming that's a, a reference to Satan uh, entering into Judas in the Gospels. God's curse in Genesis 3, 14 through 15 may be viewed as addressing the real culprit, Satan, through the instrument, the serpent, comparable to Jesus's rebuke of Peter, get behind me, Satan. There is, however, another way of viewing the serpent in Genesis 3. When New Testament writers associate the serpent with Satan or the devil, they do not explicitly represent that association as a semi-divine dark power manipulating an animal or a mere organ of temptation. Instead, the serpent seems to function as a descriptive title at the same level as the dragon or the devil or Satan. Since later revelation identifies Satan as a fallen angelic creature, and a bunch of passages are given there, perhaps what Adam and Eve saw and heard in the garden was no mere snake, but a serpent-like creature belonging to a higher order than the ordinary beast of the field. Several considerations lend support to this view. First of all, the serpent obviously bears qualities that are superior to the animal life, namely intellectual, communicative, and moral capacities. The use of the min comparative to describe the serpent as wiser than ordinary animals indicates a contrast and need not imply that the serpent in fact belonged to the same class of beings with which he was compared. Thus, when Solomon pledges to Yahweh a great temple, for our God is greater than all gods, he does not intend to place God in the same class as the false deities of the pagans. Actually, I disagree with what that article is saying there, how they understand that. We've talked about that actually with the Elohim lesson. When the psalmist declares, I have more understanding than all my teachers, he views himself as a pupil, not as a teacher. Similarly, the serpent of Genesis 3 may appear to belong to the class of animals with which he is compared, but in fact does not. Hence, the narrator's syntax seems to place the serpent into a class of his own. Moreover, one may read the so-called etiological et 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 allusion to the ordinary snake's legless locomotion and earthly diet, dust you shall eat, in Genesis 3.14 as instead a metaphorical description of disgrace and defeat. For instance, the Solomonic Psalm 72 prays that Yahweh will cause the human king enemies to bow to the ground and eat dust. The prophet Micah heralds God's judgment upon the nations and depicts their defeat in terms of licking the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. Similarly, the woman's offspring crushing the serpent's head with his heel in Genesis 3.15 need not constrain the picture of a human stepping on the head of a literal snake, since the same language is used elsewhere with the human victor and the human vanquished. Indeed, the New Testament depicts the eschatological victory of Christ 
and the church over Satan and his minions in terms of the underfoot, underfoot subjugation metaphor. And here Romans 16.20 is quoted, and I find this to be helpful and somewhat persuasive because it says the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the your that Paul's talking about in Romans 16 is the church. Second quality that the article is bringing out is the superlative shrewdness of the serpent. Second, the superiority of the serpent over the humans also suggests an angelic creature. In Genesis 2, Adam's portrayed as wiser than the animals that he's appointed to rule over and has the capacity to name them. Indeed, among the livestock, birds, beasts, there was none uh, equal to Adam. But in chapter 3, the serpent assumes the role of humankind's teacher and superior. As many commentators point out, the description of the serpent as crafty, uh, Rome, is probably a wordplay on the previous description of Adam and Eve as naked, Arum. Um, probably referencing the relationship between being innocent, but maybe naive as well. Remember, guys, it's about getting wisdom. Although Adam and Eve are betrayed as wiser than the animals, they're also depicted as lacking a higher kind of wisdom, symbolized by the tree of knowledge. Accordingly, the reader should interpret their nakedness not as a reference to ethical innocency and immature, uh, sorry. Accordingly, the reader should interpret their nakedness as a reference to ethical innocency and immaturity. They do not yet possess that Elohim-like quality and prerogative that characterize angelic beings and some earthly monarchs who function as judges. The serpent, however, does possess that quality. Although the Hebrew, uh, Rome, sometimes conveys negative connotations, it predominantly denotes one who has wisdom, Proverbs 14.8, and is contrasted with ethical folly elsewhere in the Proverbs and naivete. So the narrator portrays the serpent as wiser than the humans. Lastly, the well-known use of the article with a noun serpent suggests an entity already well-known to the original Israel audience. Of course, this may imply nothing more than the Israelites already knew the Genesis 3 story about a talking serpent that tempted the humans. On the other hand, biblical evidence indicates that Moses' original audience may have been aware of a class of angelic creatures called seraphim, to which the serpent in Genesis 3 may have belonged. Though the term is sometimes applied to ordinary snakes, it's also used in Isaiah's vision for the dragon-like angelic beings with wings and limbs that flanked Yahweh's throne in Isaiah 6. Such semi-divine creatures find counterparts in the legends and mythologies in the ancient Near East. In her study of serpent symbolism in the Old Testament and its relation to ancient Near Eastern serpent symbolism, Karen Joins notes the striking resemblance of form and function between the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the winged serpents that stand erect, wear crowns, and flank the throne of the 14th century B.C. Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. She also refers to the many Egyptian scarabs that feature winged serpents, most of which date to the 8th and 9th centuries B.C. 
While the Israelite reader would have rejected the mythological distortions of his pagan neighbors, he would have no serious obstacle in viewing the serpent in Genesis 3 as a supernatural being of angelic status that had rebelled against Yahweh and had become the supreme antagonist to the divine will. In other words, the ancient Near Eastern mythical concepts of the semi-divine dragon, like creatures, may reflect the nation's faint memory of that primeval serpent-like creature in Eden. The fact that angelic guardian creatures called cherubim were also present in the Garden of Eden lends further support to the view that the primeval serpent was not an ordinary snake, but an angelic being who was about to lead the vice-regents of Yahweh Elohim into cosmic mutiny. So there you go. There's a lot going on in there, guys. And I'm, I'm wrapping things up. But maybe just want to give a shout out to where we're going. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not battle flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness. And I think somehow there's got to be a connection going on here that began in Genesis 3 that unfolds throughout Scripture. And that Jesus, the ultimate human, who is often identified and paralleled with Adam and Eve in the garden, must have confronted this spiritual evil in some way. And so I find myself persuaded to think that way. Um, however, I think things like how the ancient Near East viewed chaos creatures adds a layer that I don't think is fighting against what the article is trying to say, but can complement and add to it. So that's that's a wrap for today. I want to uh, add more to this in our next lesson when we talk about who else is down here, because there's some serpent that seems to be in rebellion against God, and there are other spiritual beings that seem to be as well. And I want to talk about those individuals next.